I'm Michelle Sims, and this is The Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome back to The Beauty and the Mess. This is episode three, Rising from the Ashes of Addiction with Rita Tattersall. And I have to say before we begin today that if you've ever met someone and instantly felt a connection with them, for me, that is Rita. She is warm, open, and very vulnerable. And her motivation to be on this podcast was simply the hope of helping at least one person. How awesome is that? And with that being said, Rita is a licensed addictions and mental health counselor. She is a trained EMDR therapist that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. She received her master's degree in clinical addictions from Indiana Wesleyan University in 2016 and her post-master's degree in clinical mental health counseling from Butler University in 2019. She coaches women to empower them to find and walk in their God-given purpose She also helps them stop avoiding and learn how to manage painful memories, emotions, and past experiences. To do this, she uses the power of prayer, scripture, and worship as tools in the healing process, along with her vast education and her personal experiences. In my conversation with Rita today, we will be discussing her personal journey of addiction, not once, but twice, and her subsequent rise out of the aftermath. At this point, I'd also like to issue a trigger warning for today's episode, as we will briefly touch on suicide and or suicidal thoughts during this discussion. If this may trigger extreme emotional distress for you, you should skip today's episode. And with that being said, if you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline immediately, which is available 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. And before we get started, it's important to note that according to the Bedrock Recovery Center abuse statistics, that over 20 million people over the age of 12 had a substance abuse disorder in 2018. 9.2 million people over the age of 18 had both a substance abuse disorder and a co-occurring mental illness in 2018. 17% of people with drug addiction or dependence had serious thoughts of suicide in 2019. And 20% of nurses struggle with addiction to drugs or alcohol as of 2019. And with that, let's dive into today's episode. Rita, thank you so much for joining us today on the Beauty and the Mess. And you're my first guest, so I appreciate it greatly. And please allow me some grace with that. With all your impressive credentials, people may be shocked to know that you yourself experienced and battled addiction. Would you want to take us back to that time and what led up to that? Absolutely. And, And you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. So one of the things that I want to touch on just a little bit is a sense of person-centered language. So sometimes when we hear addict or alcoholic, we take a negative connotation to that. One of the reasons why the DSM-5 has changed its stance on addiction, they actually call it substance use disorder. So just recognizing the difference. Now, if I go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting or another 12-step fellowship where everybody understands that if I'm an addict, that means I'm probably in recovery. But a lot of individuals outside of that culture, you know, if I walked up to you and I said, hi, Michelle, my name's Rita and I'm an addict, you might say, oh my gosh, let me hide my purse, right? Or stay away from my kids and my family. Now, not that I would walk around today and just say that, but if I came up and in the right context, I said, hey, Michelle, I'm Rita and I'm a person who's in long-term recovery, that might mean something completely different. You would understand that. Person-centered language is something we're really trying to push in the mental health arena. And you notice I say mental health, not uh, mental illness. We want to promote health and uh, not disease. And also just to recognize we are not our quote-unquote disorder. And I know you didn't say I'm an addict or anything like that, but you did use the word addiction, which is still an appropriate terminology to use. But I just wanted to put that out there just to promote that. So essentially, 
what happened was I come from a long line of substance use disorder and mental health issues. Not everybody in the 60s, 70s. My dad was born in 40s. So was my mother, my grandmother born in the 20s. We didn't really recognize mental health or mental illness at that time. And so a lot of people dealt with things the best way that they know how. And my dad struggled with an alcohol use disorder, pretty severe. In the later years, once I became a therapist, I realized he had bipolar disorder as well. And he would have bouts of psychosis and different things like that. And he was extremely angry. So there was lots of abuse that took place in our home. I fortunately had an older brother and an older sister. My brother and sister are eight and nine years older than I am. And they were very protective of me. In all actuality, so was my mom and my dad. They were older when they had me. So they had more patience. And I did not get the brunt of the abuse that my brother and sister did. My mother eventually divorced my father. I was about seven years old. I was in second grade. And she finally did leave that abusive relationship. It was pretty traumatic that last night whenever my dad, I think he finally came to the conclusion that she was really leaving this time. It was a pretty rough night. There were knives that were drawn and there was a lot of throwing things across the room and people across the room and ripping out starter engines or starter plugs from the cars. And ultimately, my mother almost running my dad over in the dump truck. It was a very traumatic time, but she did leave. And so I did not struggle with a lot of that. But in that, my mother struggled with depression. She essentially, and at that time, we would have considered it a nervous breakdown. We don't really use that terminology today, but she had a major depression that she went through. And my 16-year-old sister at the time became really my caretaker. My brother was struggling with his own issues and different things like that. Being the only boy, loving my dad very much, wanting to prove himself with him. My sister being the uh, hero of the family and the person that that was going to step up to the plate and the caretaker, she stepped into that role. Well, a 16-year-old raising her eight-year-old sister is not the greatest because I was bratty and uh, opinionated and all of those things. And so I went through a pretty tough time just being lost myself, just trying to figure out where I belonged. And I missed my dad too. But anytime I would mention my dad, of course, that would set fear into my sister because my sister was was very afraid of my dad. She'd shut that down. My mom was, she was able to work. She was always uber independent and always uber responsible. She had her own things that happened in her childhood as well. Her dad died when she was 13 and her mother was disabled. So she was always very responsible and always worked. So she'd get up in the morning, go to work and come home and go to bed. So there was a period, and I don't know the length, but there was a period that my mom wasn't really available. She just didn't have it in her. Of course, I know that now at the time, there's just a lot of abandonment and feelings. And then I'm being rejected by my father because he had an alcohol use disorder and he chose to drink a lot. And he did come back into the picture and there was never any forced visitations or anything like that. So I grew up just kind of lost, feeling abandoned, feeling rejected, but not really knowing what those terminologies were and trying to avoid what those feelings are. I learned very early how to stuff. I was always an avid reader. I was always playing in those days. You you got to play and do all kinds of things. And that was great. And um, I was always outgoing so I could make friends, but I never really felt like I belonged. Fast forward, I had gotten married to my first husband and we had two kids. I thought that was going to fix me, right? I thought that being somebody's wife, being somebody's mother, that then I would be fulfilled. And there just always was that loss and that sense of emptiness and that sense of something's not right. So I I actually meet my second husband, whom I'm married to now, while I was married to my first husband. Not super proud of the way all of that went down, but that is the reality of that story. And I kind of drag my kids through that nonsense and since had to make amends in those aspects too. But I meet my second husband, we get married and I'm like, okay, this is it. He had a son too. He was super protective and he adored me and he loved me and we did all these things and encouraged me to do better. And I go to nursing school. 
I become a nurse. And so in 2004, I graduated with my nursing degree and I thought, okay, this is it. This is what's going to fulfill me. So I become a nurse. And in that time, I'm still having all this angst. And I know that I should be happy, but I'm just not. We go through those periods of those woulda, coulda, shouldas. And I always say we're wouldn't, couldn't, shouldn't all over ourselves, right? All of a sudden, it's, well, I should be and I should all over myself. He's even, maybe you need to go talk to somebody. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go talk to somebody. So I start seeing a therapist and we're working through some stuff. And I remember going through the little questionnaire and what brings up your childhood and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, my dad was an alcoholic and it was bad and stuff. I'm over all that. We really didn't dive much into that. And I'm having stomach issues and I'm having just this overwhelming sense of dread. I can remember in those years just being anxious about everything. Now, that was internal. Alternal, I looked very confident. I looked very put together. Our whole family looked very put together. I didn't really mention like periods of time. I, I always would drink, right? And I smoked pot on occasion a lot when I was in high school. I never had an off switch. And so what I mean by that is once I got started, I never knew whenever I would stop, right? Sometimes I would stop and most of the time I wouldn't. It would be until I was throwing up or I had did something ridiculous, embarrassed myself, embarrassed my family, whatever the situation is. So periods of time, even early on in my marriage, I got married to Ted in 2001. And even early on in my marriage, I would have these breaks of my drinking because he would be like, you got to stop. You're out of control. I become a nurse and seeing this therapist and I've been put on antidepressants and I've been put on some anxiety medications and still not feeling 100% right. I go to my doctor and they do an exploratory surgery because they're like, because I just had all these stomach problems, but we couldn't pinpoint it. So I get this exploratory surgery and it was essentially like a laparoscopic thing. Well, I had surgeries before and I had a couple of kids naturally and they had prescribed me hydrocodone, which is an opiate derivative brand name, Lortab. I would never take them. I was like, oh, they didn't really do what I needed it to do. I remember being in the hospital with my oldest son whenever I delivered him and they gave it to me and it woke me up. And I was like, well, this is dumb. I don't want to be woken up. I want to be asleep. So I was like, I don't need that. And in nursing school, we were taught at that time that pain is subjective. Pain is almost quote unquote uncontrollable. And you want to stay on top of the pain and you never want the pain to get out of control. So you want to make sure that your patients are medicated appropriately because you don't want them to be uncomfortable. If there's a patient and they have pain, make sure you give them that medicine and go ahead and give it to them every four hours as it's prescribed and then send them home with that medicine. And at that time, that's whenever we were starting to get, I don't know, for a small surgery, I had 48 pills. So I had a, a bottle of 24 and then a refill of 24 that I could do. And that was for like an incision that was, what, an inch long? So that was just a standard type of a protocol that we did. And so I was I was a really good nurse. And so I have this surgery and have it filled. And I got up in the morning and yeah, I was probably a little bit sore. And so I took the medicine as prescribed and took it again in four hours and then probably again another four hours. And then all of a sudden there was this time that I took it and I became euphoric. And that's essentially what opiates did for me. And I had this sense of everything was right in the world and everything was what I thought normal. I was pretty sure that every single person in the world experienced life the way I felt on that medication. And I was like, wow, well, I knew enough that I couldn't go to my doctor and be like, those antidepressants, that Zoloft that you gave me, all of that stuff, the Xanax and stuff that you're giving me for my anxiety and the Klonopin, you know, I don't need that. I just need Lorta. That's what I need. But yeah. I knew I couldn't say that because I know it was a pain medicine, right? So I took those and then I took the other 24 over a period of time. And again, that was in 2005. So I graduated nursing in 2004. In 2005 is whenever I had that surgery. And that was my first glimpse of what an opiate could do for you. And so I 
didn't think anything about it again. Honestly, go to work and I come home and I'm still going to the therapist and I'm still trying to figure this stuff out. Never really touching on what's really happening because as we do, who are responsible and independent And at the time I had identity issues. We still don't even let that person who's supposed to take care of us or help us in completely. So I still had image management on my mind. And so I would tell her so much and then that was it. And just about every single day, maybe not every day, but a lot of days, I would think to myself, I could probably just ram my car into that telephone pole. And it would look like an accident. And if a car would hit me, it would be fine. I wasn't ever going to act on that. I was raised with a pretty significant, strong religious background from my mother's side. We would periodically go to church. We didn't go all the time, but I was saved. And for individuals who don't know that terminology, so I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior whenever I was about eight years old. And essentially in the Christian faith, you believe that is who you're going to follow and follow in the precepts of what Christianity is. So I knew enough that he was good and I knew enough that he could help me, but I didn't think I was good enough. I had run from God actually for about 10 years. I hadn't even stepped foot into a church after the things that I had done in my first marriage, the adultery and the drinking and the different things like that. So I was pretty sure because I was in a very legalistic Assemblies of God denomination. And not that there's just different sects of religion that some of them have a tendency to be a little bit more legalistic or law following, follow all these rules and uh, follow our doctrine. And they would never say they, they knew were saved, but it was an implied notion that if you don't not drink not cuss, not smoke, not do all these things, then you're right with God or whatever. Do you feel like these thoughts of suicide, even though you've told us that you never believe that you'd really act upon them, but do you think it was coming from your own background or do you think that the drugs in some way were enhancing that feeling? Well, at that time I wasn't on drugs and I probably wasn't even drinking at that time. This is still just prior to when that addiction really took hold. So I had experienced those opiates. I had experienced what it could be like. And then it was like, and then I was dealing with all of those things, anxiety, depression, which if we're suicidal, if we have suicide thoughts, we definitely have a major depressive disorder. So later on, Whenever I became fully engulfed in my addiction, in the substances, which were primarily started with opiates and then ended before September of 2007, whenever I entered treatment, it it was everything. I won't get into all the gory details, but any type of pain medication, substances that I could get a hold of, I would. And I took it in large doses because you build a tolerance and... There's times whenever I look back on some of the things I do, and I think only by the grace of God that I survived. When my husband finally came to the realization, so I started taking medications from my employer because I was a nurse and opiates are very readily accessible to nurses, especially then. This was in 2006 that I started taking the opiates, the Laura tabs from work as far as from like a patient or whatever. I think all the statute of limitations is over, although I have had charges that developed later. But in in all actuality, there's been really bad things that could have happened to me legally. Gratefully, gratefully, I ended up with a misdemeanor conversion charge, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So my husband found a syringe in my purse and he just could not rationalize in his own head. Why would my wife have a syringe in her purse when she come home from work? The fact that I would nod out on the couch and burn holes in my hands from cigarettes and nodding out is a is a terminology. You just fall asleep essentially. And because I was just taking such copious amounts. And in all actuality, that part of my addiction to opiates lasted only eight months. So in an eight-month period, I went from taking a couple of five-milligram tabs to, and this is no exaggeration, I was 
eating fentanyl patches. I've heard of that. Taking Dilaudid, any morphine that was actually what was in the syringe was morphine that day that he found it. And I went along, this was on September 25th of 2007. It's funny how you remember dates. Those are very significant dates. And he went to work and I went about my day like nothing had happened. He came home and unbeknownst to me, he had been in contact with some friends and stuff and they were looking for a treatment facility. And he came home and he said, you go to treatment or you leave. Those were my options. And I honestly, I was so grateful internally. I've talked about this a lot. I was so grateful internally. I was like, oh my gosh, thank God. Somebody knows he's going to support. But what came out of my mouth was, no, I don't need to go. Now that I knew enough to know that there were these meetings that you could go to. And so now I'm playing on his quote unquote codependent enabling personality that he has, protective personality that he has. And I'm relying on that to get me from having to do that because I knew I would have to make up some excuse to my boss. I knew that more than likely I would lose my nursing license, like everything I had worked for. So you were fully aware of the consequences? Oh, absolutely. There was not ever one time. I always chuckle when individuals will come in for counseling and they're like, I keep telling them what's going to happen if they keep doing this. And I'm like, well, do you think they don't know? Everyone is fully aware of right from wrong. I don't know why they lie. Well, they lie to protect themselves. They lie to protect their disease. They lie to protect whatever. They'll go through all the gamut. Don't they understand they're going to lose everything? And yes, this is logically, of course, we understand we're going to lose everything. But experientially, we just sit there and say, I've gotten away with it for so long. But I think for family and friends, it, it helps you cope. If you have a loved one with an addiction, because you can say, well, surely they don't understand what they're doing to everyone else. You know what I mean? You make excuses. Yes, absolutely. And those were the the same things that my husband was doing, making excuses for my behavior because we had developed pretty good on the outside. Like our reputation was pretty good. He coached the kids as ball games, their different sports, baseball. He had a good job. I had a good job. We had good things. So the last thing he wanted was to be like, oh my gosh, I'm married to a drug addict, right? And that's the biggest thing for so many spouses, so many families is what's this mean for us if this is what's really happening? So I went to treatment and, oh, it was it was such a relief, honestly. Those moments I, I walk in and it was just for the first time there was peace and they had meetings and they had some groups and different things like that. And I was introduced to the 12 steps and this new way of life. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, this is what I need to do. Well, I ended up taking eight months off of work and I keep repeating eight because this was like a common theme. So my addiction at that point was eight months. I take eight months off of work because we end up filing bankruptcy and all these different things and just focused on my recovery. That was the big thing. My husband, again, super supportive, super helpful. And so we were just focusing on my recovery and I did all the things they told me to do in treatment, 90 meetings in 90 days and get a sponsor and work the steps and do all these these things and, and then you'll succeed. And it was quite successful for about 16 months. So again, there we got that eight month and eight month mark, right? So after the eight months, I go back to work. So lo and behold, I get to go back into the same position at my former employer's place. And I had a great plan. I had worked the plan out with my therapist and my sponsor. I had all these things that I would do if I got tempted because we knew that the temptation was going to be great. And on December 25th of 2008, so I have 16 months clean at this time. My kids had come to my one-year celebration at my 12-step meeting, and they said nice things to me. And isn't it funny how I don't remember all the nice things that they said to me? I can remember all the, the terrible things that I did, all the horrific, traumatic things that kind of happened. But these moments of when my kids were telling me how proud they were of me, of my husband telling me how proud he was of me and different things. I don't remember what they said, but I know that it was kind. And so we 
have that one-year celebration in September. And then in December, I was feeling sorry for myself. And that's always the big key is we start to feel sorry for ourselves. Now, I had worked a 16-hour shift on Christmas, and I was getting well compensated for working 16 hours on Christmas Day, and I had never really even cared. I care about Christmas, but Christmas Eve was always our big holiday. Our kids would go to their other parent's house for Christmas Day, but we always wanted Christmas Eve. So as long as I had Christmas Eve off, I was fine. But it was a good excuse, and I started taking opiates. So just working that shift triggered yeah. It wasn't just that shift. I mean, it had happened. I had started to get complacent in my quote unquote program. I had started to get complacent with going to meetings. It was coming up to where the holiday times, you're picking up a lot of extra shifts and stuff like that. And I was making extra money and we started getting things back. The things come back pretty fast. So what are you thinking to yourself when you take that first pill after you've been clean for so long? I'm thinking it's just going to be this one time. And I talk about that all the time with clients. I talk about that with any change that we do, whether it's even as simple as I'm going to take a walk every day. And then that one day pops up and we're like, yeah, I'm not going to go take a walk today. You're probably not going to do it tomorrow and you're probably not going to do it the next day. (laughs) Bad habits are really easy to fall back into. Good habits are the hard ones that we have a hard time keeping, right? Were you just searching for that feeling of euphoria again? Yes, it was going to get me through this really terrible feeling that I'm having on the inside. And I also thought because towards the end of my addiction, before I went into treatment, you're not using to get high anymore. You're only using to maintain. You're maintaining an existence. And typically, people would not realize that there was anything wrong with me until I was actually in the withdrawal state. So if I didn't have substances, that's whenever I looked abnormal. That's whenever I acted abnormal. When I was high, I was a superwoman. I could take care of all the the housework. I could work 16-hour shifts. I could do everything. I could come home, be wonderful. My husband will often just talk about, you were so complacent then, in almost a positive way. And I'm like, yeah, because I didn't have any will or any fight in me. I just went along with everything. Everything was great. But towards the end of that, you're just using to maintain. And there wasn't any euphoria that was happening towards the end at all. That's why I was taking such copious amounts of substance just to try to get back to that state of euphoria. They used to talk about that it was called chasing the dragon. And that's a a real thing. I talk about this too. I was only going to do it this one more time. So that's why I stole three. That's why I took three, right? Because I was only going to do it this one more time, right? And denial uh, is an acronym for don't even notice I'm lying. And so when we talk about those defense mechanisms of denial, we're not really necessarily lying to everybody else. We're lying to ourselves. That's why we're so good at it. That's why we can be so manipulative. That's why we can tell a lie and you may not even be able to realize we're lying. We believe it. We believe that lie. Your employer had to be very forgiving in a way, I'm, I'm guessing, to allow you to even come back. Absolutely. So how did you justify that in your mind that you're putting them at risk? Again, right? Well, honestly, the justification, and this is the crazy part of substance use, the justification was they like me better when I'm high. Oh, wow. They probably know and they like me better. Isn't that a ridiculous statement? Yeah, that's wild. I think we get get to a point that we tell ourselves anything. Oh, we're going to tell ourselves anything to support this. And that's why addiction substance use disorder is so insidious. Because it starts to betray all of the right and wrong. We know that lying is wrong. We know that stealing is wrong. But somehow we're able to justify, well, this time it's okay. And we'll just rationalize all of our behavior. There was this saying that I used to hear that this guy walks into a bar and he's sitting at the bar, he's bellied up and the bartender says, Charlie, why do you drink so much? And he says, because my wife doesn't understand me. He says, well, what doesn't she understand? Why I drink so much. We just become in this very circular type of a thought process. We can't even get off that merry-go-round. If someone's listening that's struggling with this same things, what allows you to become sustainable in your recovery? And how do you even start? 
For me, in August of 2009 is when all my employers showed up at work. It was a Saturday and I knew they were coming for me and they confronted me and I said yes and I handed them my keys and I left. And for me, that was a big part that I didn't have this self-image to maintain anymore. In the previous time, no one knew, honestly. And even at that time, my employer, one of the reasons why they hired me back was because I said I had an alcohol problem. Regardless of whether it's alcohol, meth, heroin, whatever your addiction is, alcohol is more acceptable. And so they were like, oh, okay. And you're better. Oh, yeah, I'm better now. That's how I got my job back as central. Oh, wow. So I lied to get back in, right? I always say a half truth is a full lie. And had I done that, they might have been watching me a little bit closer. And I was in a program for nurses to help protect the public and myself and my employer from relapsing. But they knew you had been stealing drugs at that point. No, no. No, they did not know. No, they did not know. They had no clue. You just had an alcoholism Mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then the second time, then in August of 2009, there you couldn't hide it. So because you become sloppy. And like I said, you start to say, well, they probably like me better this way because I show up to work. You're not going to avoid your drug dealer. Right. And not that they knew they were my drug dealer. But that's that story. So they let me go. And then I get arrested and my pictures in the paper and all of the things that I thought would be so horrible and essentially became one of the best things in hindsight that ever happened. You ask, how do you sustain long-term recovery? It's with a lot of support. It's with starting to recognize that it is a disease, that it's not a moral failing. Because of all of the immoral things that you do while you're in your addiction, there is so much guilt and shame that surrounds that. And so it's recognizing that that shame is going to keep us sick. But that shame was always there. That shame was always there from childhood. So that was just a way to reinforce those negative core beliefs that I had even from childhood. And I did have some mental health issues that were going on, that anxiety and that depression was definitely prevalent. And I I never wanted to believe that I was self-medicating, but that's essentially what I was doing. I was self-medicating. And so many individuals, that's where it starts, is with that self-medication. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned identity because a lot of us have identity issues from when we were little, but you reconstructed your identity and then it just fell all apart as who you knew yourself to be when you see your picture in the paper. Right. As a matter of fact, I I have that picture in my office at work. I have my mugshot and then beside it, I have my graduation picture from grad school. And I do that for a reason because that moment, that mugshot and then being able to come full circle in realizing what my true identity was. And that true identity is in my higher power, which is Christ to me. My true identity comes from that love from Christ. And once I recognized what that love was, that I was fully loved, that he would never love me any more on my worst day than he does on my best day. Whenever I finally got that from my head, and you move that 16 inches down to your heart to where it's real, that's when my sustained recovery came from. And I'm going to be 100% honest that that took years for that to happen. Now, I could stay abstinent. I didn't use, and I was progressing, and I was bettering myself all through that. I started returning back to school in 2011 to become a, a counselor. But even within all of that, there was still that part that I thought somehow I had to earn this love that was freely given to me. But once I finally recognized what that true identity was and that I will never be more loved than I am right now, he can't because his love is unconditional. That's when things really started to change for me. So how did you get to that point? Was it just involving yourself in the word every day or did you find a church? All of the above. So on August 15th of 2009 is the day that my bosses had come in and confronted me and I left. And on August 16th, 
Now, I had ran from the church. I'd ran from organized religion for about 10 years. I was already starting through the process of the 12-step program. They talk about how it's not a religious program. It's a spiritual program, and you can have any higher power that you need, and the 12 steps is about higher power. So I was already connecting that spiritual piece again, and I was able to call my higher power Jesus Christ, and I knew he was my higher power. I knew he was my sustenance. I heard an individual one time say that 12 steps is like spiritual baby food. You get in there and you start to to recognize, okay, because these individuals come along, they're very supportive. It's a community. We weren't designed to do life alone. So I was starting to get that. So in that 16-month period, at this point now, it's 23 months because it was a year before what my second year anniversary would have been from treatment. I hadn't gone back to church and I wasn't in the word. I watched a lot of different religious people, Joyce Meyer being one of them. I really liked her and I would watch her on TV and stuff like that. And I listened to Christian music. So I think that was helpful, but I never stepped foot into a church. I was wounded like a lot of people in religion are, and I didn't want anything to do with that. But on that day when that happened, I was like, oh, geez. Because I knew my kids were going to be brought into this mix. The first time they escaped a lot of the embarrassment and the ridicule of their mother being an addict, but but this time they were going to deal with it. And of course, people would be like, well, didn't you know? They're like, well, yeah, I guess you do. <laughs> but do you and consciously think of that? You don't think it's ever going to happen to you. That's why you do it. It's not a matter of you don't know. Again, I go back to individuals know right from wrong, even if they're raised in an environment where they don't experience that. They still know intuitively what right from wrong is. They may not know all the nuances of it, but they know. I drove around my little community till I found a church that started five minutes later than all the other ones. And that's whenever I got back involved in organized religion again and stayed there and got fed and got supported. And my kids got involved in their youth group because that's really what I wanted for them and made some of my um, best friends and learned a lot about the word. The minister that was there, he was very intelligent and really was good in that. But again, I I was being fed a lot, spoon fed a lot. I wasn't taking it into my own. It really wasn't until I started reading the word and applying it for myself that things really did start to change. And I don't want to leave the illusion that you can go to the altar, pray about it, and everything will be gone. I believe that can happen. There is immediate deliverance, but I don't want to discount how much work that can be involved sometimes. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt, but then they wandered around in the desert for 40 years while Egypt was delivered out of them. And what that means is that slavery having to be delivered out of them. And so sometimes people are fortunate enough to have like that. I have known people that they say, I went up to the altar, buried it on the altar or whatever, and I never thought about it again. And and I'm always like, well, good for you. That's not what my story was like. Christine Kane talks about you can go to the altar and get saved, but if you have cellulite on your way up to the altar, you're going to have cellulite on your way back from the altar. It doesn't immediately come off of you. So and it's good for people to know that. For a lot of us, there's, it's not an instant cure, you know. No. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be as bold to say, even for those individuals that have that instantaneous deliverance from something like that, there is still work that needs to be done, that the Holy Spirit still needs to get in there and work through that to help you. Because I didn't start using drugs because I didn't know any other. I, well, I guess I did. I started using drugs because I didn't know another way. But I started using drugs because I had painful memories, emotions, and past experiences that I had to work on, that I had to let come out, that I had to expose to the light so that I didn't turn back to those substances to numb because they're very effective. Some people shop, some people change their living room, some people go up and down in weight, some people buy new cars, some people work a lot, just to not have to deal with those painful memories, emotions, and past experiences. And physiologically, substances are really good at burying. It's not a positive coping skill, but it is a coping skill nonetheless. Right. I guess I talked a lot about that. I'm sorry. Would you like to take your podcast over? 
No, I appreciate all of the insight, actually. At what point of your recovery did you realize that this was going to be your calling in life or did that evolve over time? It certainly did. So I I still remember in 2011, I was going to a meeting. It was a faith-based recovery meeting and this individual is pretty well known in Kokomo. I'm going to go ahead and say his name and I'll text him later and tell him I I said his (laughs) name, but it was Chuck McCoskey and he ran this faith-based meeting that's out at South Creek now on 26. I actually know him. and Yes, a lot of people know Chuck, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. He's wonderful. And they still have that meeting every Monday and Wednesday night at 6 p.m. I'll give him a little bit of plug on that. But I was at one of those meetings one time and he come up and he says, man, he said, you really should be a counselor. He said, you just have, he said something like, you have recovery written all over you or something like that. And I said, oh, Chuck, everybody in addiction goes in to be a, be a counselor. I don't want to do any of that. And it wasn't that much longer that something else happened in my life. I was at some meeting or something with my church. And the speaker said, some of you will have to go back to school to, to complete your purpose. Something else happened. Somebody else walked up and said, hey, we're starting this new program at IWU. It was the addictions admissions director at Indiana Wesleyan. And he's like, why don't you look into that? And I was like, oh, I don't, okay. I mean, this just happened. It was like in a two-month period. Yeah, that's the oh. kind of where coincidences aren't really coincidences. They're not. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't believe in coincidences. Right. I think they're all God winks, right? And so everything just started to fall in place. And I, I was actually working at Steak and Shake at the time. So I finally got another job in October of 2009. I had a heck of a time getting another job. I I wasn't going to go back into nursing or whatever. And because I just, I was like, I am terrified. I was terrified that I would spend the rest of my life in jail. And I was terrified to be around. I would tell people it's cruel and unusual punishment to have to touch the thing that you're so addicted to every day. And not to mention that I probably wasn't going to get a nursing job anyway. And so I finally got a job in December of, of 2009. It was like December 23rd. I just basically begged this guy to hire me. And it was at Steak and Shake. And I ended up being there. But I was on my way into Steak and Shake. And it was like, oh, I think I'm going to go back to school. But you know what, God? If you want me to do this, I don't have my financial aid applied for. I don't have anything done, whatever the situation is. And this was halfway through 2010 or 2011. I can't even remember. It had to be 2011 because that's whenever I went back to school. So let's say this was September and just doors started opening for me to get in there. And it was, you know, all online and it was five weeks and they sent you the books and you never had to go in and they just did this thing and it was 18 months. Wow. And so that was my, for my undergrad, for my bachelor's degree. And then I got accepted into the master's program, which after I had applied and everything, I get this letter that said, you know, congratulations, you're accepted to Indiana Wesleyan graduate program. And I was like, I'm in grad school? What? I was so naive. It was probably a good thing it said that I was just, you know, stupid enough to think that because grad school sounded way too intellectual and way too, that was going to be beyond me. I was pretty sure of it. I hated school. So that was never going to be a part of it. So it's just funny how all that's protected. So I got my master's degree, became a counselor, but no, it was not my intention to be a counselor. I didn't really know what my intention was going to be after, well, I didn't lose my nursing license. It's still in the suspended. And honestly, even while I went to school and stuff, I tried to get some type of reassurance that all of my work going into getting my degree was going to be worth it. You have to have a licensure for what I do. So I have an LCAC licensed clinical addiction counselor license, and then also an LMHC licensed mental health counselor. And I was trying to get clarification that I would even be able to be licensed because in the state of Indiana, it's all through the same licensing board. Your nursing license, any professional license is all through that board. So I had no guarantees when I went to school that I would ever even be able to be licensed or even be employed. So, yeah, because it was just that strong sense. And I talk about that, that we want everything laid out in front of us don't we? We, we want to know. We want all the guarantees. We want to know that all of our hard work is going to pay off. But all I got was like little snippets. I want you to do this. You need to go do this now. 
this doors open. And all along the way, people are like encouraging me and, and supporting me and opening those doors for me. So one of the prayers that I pray every day is, Lord, open the doors that you want to be opened and close any door that you want closed, because I don't want what you don't want for me. And I've prayed that really since 2009, honestly, and maybe even before that. And and I just kind of stepped forward. And I remember having to go before the board whenever I went to be licensed after I took one of the tests or getting permission to take the test. And they made me come down to petition the board as to why they should let me be, why they should make some, whatever. I, I had to argue my cause before the board. I'm sure it's full disclosure at that point. Oh, yeah. Well, and they already knew my record is in there and it's in the board and why it's suspended and everything else. I had to write a letter. And to this day, anytime I get a license, I have to answer these questions and put in my little addendum statements and all that kind of stuff. So it comes up every single time. But apparently it, it had never happened before in the state of Indiana. So they had to have a sidebar in the board meeting to say why they were allowing me to be licensed in the state of Indiana under a different profession because I had a suspended license under the nursing profession. So they had to have a sidebar about that and write it down in the notes and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, looky there, I'm a trailblazer. Embarrassing. A lot of people don't have to relive their worst days. And again, I always say, if my story can help one person, it's worth it. And the beauty of what has happened is I haven't had to wait years to see fruit from that story. I've been able to hear and see other people be able to succeed. One of the things I didn't say was the treatment facility that I was in in 2007, I was hired in 2014 and cut my teeth, so to speak, in their PHP, partial hospitalization and IOP program as a counselor there. And I have seen great success from treatment from individuals who have succeeded as well. Do you feel like that's the biggest gift that's come out of your addiction? I've seen other people's transformation. Absolutely. I, I think the biggest gift that I got was the ability to surrender. The ability to allow other people in, allow other people to support me and help me, allow myself to surrender all of my, so to speak, to a power that is greater than I am, knowing that he loves me and that he will work all things for good. Um, Not that all things are good. I'm not saying that my addiction was good, but good things did come. The book of Genesis 50, 20, Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives as he is now due. That is the greatest gift. I don't always get to work with individuals who have quote unquote substance use disorder, but every one of us is struggling with that identity issue. And I get to work with people every day in that, encouraging them, coaching them, supporting them, using all of the education that's been afforded to me from other people who've developed some things. And it's amazing who God sends to me. And I truly believe that it's, I don't work in a Christian counseling center. It's amazing who God sends to me. It's like, this ain't a coincidence that you're sitting on my couch. I, I, I mean, love just, God yeah. winks or whatever you want to call yeah. it. I, I used to yeah. think a lot of things were coincidences. I, I've changed recently. Looking back, I, I'm just curious if you feel like the addiction and, and the recovery was something that you had to go through to get to where you are today. Do you think maybe that was part of the ultimate plan as far as your purpose in life that you had to live it to be able to help other people get through it? Yeah, yeah. In the book of Corinthians, I can't ever remember whether it's first or second Corinthians, but first or second Corinthians one verse 10 says we are comfort. We can comfort because we were comforted and we all go through pain. And I believe that we all go through pain for other people and that there is purpose for the pain. And I have to believe that because there's just so much, but I, I absolutely believe that it is one of my greatest 
gifts in hindsight, not while I was going through it. We live our life forward, but we understand it backwards, right? But in hindsight, oh my gosh, I wouldn't, I, would I change the pain that it caused in other people? Sure, absolutely. Oh my goodness, was I so prideful. And I had to be humbled. When the Beatitudes, it talks about we can be merciful because mercy was given to us. And blessed is the merciful, blessed is peace, all of the Beatitudes that are in there. And I just truly believe that had I not gone through one, I think that God would have gotten me to this point anyway, because I think we are all predestined for a journey. It talks about that in in just about every one of the epistles, Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, it talks about us being predestined for a purpose, but he would have gotten there, but he doesn't make mistakes and he allows things. Do I say that he caused them? Absolutely not. No. But he allows things in our lives to happen and he will work them out for good. But I don't want to sit here and pretend, well, we'll just, we have this issue, so hurry up and realize it'll work out for good. That's also not a good thing. You got to go through the middle. I always say that's a Brene Brown thing. We can't skip the middle. So we have the event. We know it's going to be okay in the end. We have enough experiences in our life. If you've been on the earth longer than 20 years, probably you realize you have experiences where things turn out okay eventually, but we don't want to skip that middle part of getting that lesson, learning those sometimes hard lessons. And I think that's how you grow as a person and even how your soul grows. Absolutely. That's how we're that's how we're going to move from faith to faith, right? You build on that faith muscle. It's a muscle. So I always say, I don't know, just not anything can probably come against me. Not that I want it to, not that I'm asking for it. I feel like I'm fairly strong in my faith. Unfortunately, that's not the only thing that's happened in my life, right? We don't just have one bad thing that happens to us and then everything else is rosy the way it works. So well you have a beautiful testimony, that's for sure. As we start to wrap up today, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Anything you would want to tell? No, we didn't really hit on all of the things, but I think that'll probably give you enough for what you need. Well, thank you very much. I feel very blessed to have met you, and I mean that sincerely. And I love hearing your testimony. Thank you. I hope Rita sharing her story helped you in some way. I thought it was very insightful that one of her biggest gifts was the ability to just surrender and allow others to help her and support her. And looking back, she realizes that the fact that she had to go through all that pain is what now allows her to comfort others. In other words, there was a reason for all of that pain. And instead of getting stuck in that pain, she's now using it to help others find a way out of theirs. I absolutely love that. And she had mentioned that another gift she received was getting to witness other people's transformations. And if you remember when I asked her about how she's able to maintain her sobriety, she quickly responded, support. And I think that's true with almost any trial we go through as humans. It's so much easier, and I'm not trying to say that sobriety is easy in any means, but I'm just saying it's easier to stay on track if you have a great support system. So hopefully we'll be able to have Rita back in the future for some more discussion. And before we end today, I want to make sure that you know that you can find Rita on Facebook and LinkedIn at Rita Tattersall and at her website, signalforhelpministries.com. You can also find her professionally at Oasis Counseling Center in Kokomo. These links will appear in the show notes. And I hope this episode, as Rita says, helps at least one person. So have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening.